This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 1st, 2023. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, last week, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee had a meeting to discuss strategies for COVID vaccination as we move forward. Eric, I know that you're a member of that committee, and Lindsay, you were listening in. So today, I'd like to discuss the conclusions that the committee reached and how the evidence stacks up at this point. We can start with what happened. The committee was asked three questions. Let's take them one by one, starting with the only one on which there was an actual vote. The committee was asked whether vaccine strain composition should be harmonized, meaning that the same antigens would be present in all available vaccines at the same time. What was the decision and why was it? Steve, I think it's important to point out first that the FDA wasn't asking for any specifics. They weren't asking us which antigen should go into the next vaccine. They were asking a more general question. Should every vaccine, no matter who manufactures it or what platform it uses, be designed to raise an immune response to the same variant or variants? Remember, that's close to what we have now. Both mRNA vaccines used for boosting contain both the ancestral strain and the BA4, BA5 spike antigen sequences. What's different is that the authorized protein-based vaccine made by Novavax still is monovalent. And that's pretty confusing for both physicians and patients. I think that this confusion is what made this a pretty easy call. The panel voted unanimously to standardize the antigens. The example of the flu vaccine came up repeatedly. For flu, each year, the committee helps select the antigen for the upcoming flu season, and all manufacturers use the same blueprint. It's important to point out, though, that the COVID situation is very different. Each flu season involves only a few strains, and we have pretty good tools that help us anticipate what those are likely to be. For COVID, we don't yet have seasonality, and it's not clear that we will, nor do we have ways to predict how the virus is likely to evolve. So, Eric, you're highlighting a couple of very important concepts that we all have to keep straight. We need to separate what the antigen is that we want to elicit an immune response against and how that is delivered to the immune system, be it through mRNA technology, protein, viral vector, or other technologies that are emerging. And I think that's an important conceptual piece that we all need to pay attention to. And different platforms, different delivery systems may elicit different types of immune responses. What you and the committee were discussing was what should the antigen be? What is the target of the immune response to elicit protection? And there, as you pointed out, currently it is very confusing in the community to have the ancestral vaccine, the bivalent vaccine, and different other antigens that are under investigation being discussed as well. And this becomes confusing when we try to deliver to the broad community hundreds of millions to billions of individuals. And I think, as you pointed out, though this is a very complicated question, it's actually quite simple from the committee's perspective, as demonstrated by the unanimous vote. We need to have a simplified message of the antigen that should be delivered by vaccine. In this case, the bivalent vaccine is the current dominant antigen that's being delivered. But this is likely to change given viral evolution that we are witnessing. Yeah, Lindsay, it's a really important point. We kind of have ducked the 
rather difficult question of what will the antigen be and how will that be determined? So that's essentially been pushed down the road. Also, because of the lack of seasonality for COVID, we don't know what the best time is going to be to choose that vaccine. So despite the fact that there was consensus opinion on moving forward with a coordinated strategy, when it comes to what the strategy will be, I suspect that there will be a lot more extensive discussion. And I just want to note, Eric, that as we think about the antigen that should be in the vaccine, this actually has reflections in other therapies like the monoclonal antibody development that has gone on over the last two and a half years. As these therapies, the MABs, are targeting the dominant strain circulating with epitopes that can be neutralized. So I see the vaccine antigen selection and technologies looking at how to develop monoclonal therapies as really struggling with the issue of what's relevant for protection and are two sides of a coin. There were two so-called discussion questions, meaning that there was no vote. What can you tell us about them? The first question was about the schedule for immunization. The proposal was to simplify it. Instead of having several different recommendations, the attempt was to try to have a standard set of recommendations that might be age group or risk group specific. The FDA has two motivations for this. First, simpler is better. And in fact, what might work best is to align vaccination with the annual flu vaccine so that both could be administered at the same visit. And second, since the vast majority of people in the US are now immune, either through vaccination, infection, or a combination of the two, a complicated initial series of vaccines isn't really justified any longer. Again, there wasn't a very specific recommendation, and though there wasn't a vote, there did appear to be a supportive consensus. I suspect that most members felt that, in the absence of any data to the contrary, simpler was better. I strongly suspect, though, that there would be a good deal of disagreement about the specifics. How many doses should be given to children who are naive? How often should boosters be given? It's clear that there are contrary opinions among experts. The problem, of course, is that we simply don't have much data about fundamental questions, such as how frequently we should give booster doses. There aren't very persuasive data on how boosting interval affects the strength or the breadth of the immune response. And breadth is a really important characteristic because it's unlikely that at this point, the antigen chosen for a strain will still represent the circulating strain once the vaccine is actually rolled out several months later. So, Erica, as you point out, and as the committee debated how to think about durability of vaccine or infection elicited immunity is an open question. And in fact, we're just two years into vaccinations being deployed. So we have incredibly limited knowledge on durability of the immune response. And during the last two years, boosters have been deployed widespread infection has occurred. So it's very complicated to understand the background immunity throughout the community. And that complicates how to develop the construct and the path for boosting and then boosting in relation to what outcome. Because the outcome that we care the most about is severe disease. However, the outcome that we can measure easily, reliably, and quickly is immunologic. And even on the immunologic side, Eric, as you well know, we are looking at the neutralizing antibody 
as the most important immune response. I suspect it is very important. I'm just not convinced it's the only or necessarily even the dominant immune response that leads to meaningful protection. So I think we have to, as a community, be very cautious in overinterpreting the data which are easy to accumulate and pay attention to data that may be more informative, such as significant illness, not immunologic activity. I think that's absolutely right. The antibody is the easiest thing to measure, and therefore we've relied very heavily on it. But there is only a pretty good correlation between protection and certainly protection against the most important aspects of disease, severe disease and death, and antibodies. And it's important to point out that we don't even know that antibodies are mediating that protection. They may only be markers for other sorts of immune responses, including T-cell responses. So make a really good point about the ease of measuring antibody. Not only is it easy, but it's fast. And the problem with clinical endpoints is they take a long time to show up, much later, in fact, than any clinical studies we could do in advance of approving a new vaccine. So I see ourselves in the same situation we were when the bivalent vaccine was being considered. We had a little bit of data, the antibody data, and we were missing all of the data that we most cared about. Nevertheless, we had to make a decision. I'm worried that that's going to happen over and over again. But Eric, I think we do need to be careful in that we don't want widespread severe illness to occur before we develop and deploy a countermeasure or a new vaccine that we now have pathways to develop rapidly. So I understand why the FDA, the agency, pulled together this meeting to have broad discussion. To wait for clinical data will mean substantial amount of illness may occur. To move forward with surrogate information, such as immunologic assessments, allows speed with a very strong rationale, but has clinical uncertainty, as you alluded to. So, Eric, just to clarify, you say that the vast majority of people in the United States are now immune. Do you mean that they're completely protected against disease or that they have some degree of immunity? Steve, thanks for helping me clarify that. By immune, I mean that they have an immune response, but we know that they aren't completely protected against disease. Even for people who've been vaccinated and have been infected, who have the maximal level of protection, they still can get infected and still can get disease. Their risk of developing severe disease, being hospitalized or dying drops dramatically though. So I should be careful in how I say this, but most people have seen the antigen and responded to it, even if they aren't protected completely. Thanks. And then the third question, while I realized there wasn't much time to discuss it at the meeting, it might end up being the most contentious of the three. What was it? The panel was asked their thoughts on periodically updating the composition, meaning the antigens present in the vaccine. That was the case last year when the bivalent mRNAs being used now replaced the previous monovalent vaccine, which only contained the ancestral spike antigen. Although not much was said during this meeting, it's clear that there's going to be disagreement. There is somewhat conflicting information on how well the newer vaccine formulations stack up against the older vaccines in terms of antibodies elicited, particularly to the viral variants that are circulating now. As we've discussed before, it remains difficult to interpret antibody levels without good clinical correlation. And we're just beginning to see some data about clinical effectiveness now. 
The CDC presented some data suggesting better effectiveness of the newer vaccines in preventing disease. And that would be consistent with a study we published last week, which suggested that both the mRNA bivalent vaccines were similarly more effective in preventing hospitalization and death than the monovalent vaccines. In this study, the effect was seen across age groups, although the absolute magnitude of difference was small at younger ages, where poor outcomes are quite rare. However, it's difficult to extrapolate from these data. First, the data are very noisy, encompassing a group of people with very different vaccination and infection histories and likely different exposures. More importantly, even if these data were completely reliable, will they be the same next time when we have to again guess in advance which strains are most important and see how well they match? So, Eric, I think that we need to look carefully at the timeline of what transpired over the last several months. BA45 emerged dominated. Vaccines were developed, deployed, the bivalent, as you just discussed. And by now, at least in much of the U.S., XBB 1.5 now dominates and has displaced BA 4.5. I highlight this timeline because this points out what we're up against as we think about developing countermeasures and vaccines and deploying them for benefit. As we've discussed, clinical data takes time. And if by the time we have clinical data without new vaccines, it may be too late for those new vaccines to afford benefit. The converse is we don't want to deploy vaccines that don't have benefit and how we harmonize this dissonant reality. The next point I just also want to highlight is a very pragmatic one, which is the different technologies at play in making new vaccines. And with flu, the technologies often take months. Hence, we choose our flu vaccine antigen six months in advance or longer. And then there's a manufacturing process. And the match, as we all discuss every year with flu, has some degree of getting it right, some degree of mismatch. And in part, there's a kinetic distance between the selection of the antigen and then flu season and deployment of the vaccine. And as we look at platforms that can manufacture in months to weeks, we need to think carefully about how to take advantage of the temporal proximity between antigen of concern and countermeasure availability. And lastly, which you've alluded to, Eric, is the issue of what parameter can help us iterate better. And this is a correlate of protection you know, one of the holy grails in vaccine development. Is there an immunologic marker which correlates with the protection and therefore I can use the marker to iterate and develop vaccines or boost or other interventions that can improve health? And that's something which we would all benefit if we had better insight into which markers were really correlates of protection, which may be different for different vaccine platforms. So we have to be savvy, but it allows us to use immunologic as opposed to clinical data to be able to move at the speed we need to in relation to SARS-2 and how quickly it's moving. I think your point about the type of immunity is a really important one, and it's one that came up repeatedly during this meeting and during previous FDA meetings. There are certainly a lot of people who feel that T-cell-mediated immunity might well be a very important contributor to protection. And there's no reason not to think that's true. In fact, 
T-cells certainly can play a role in many viral illnesses. And a vaccine that induced T-cell responses might help control infection or even prevent infection. But while there's a big appetite for understanding the T-cell responses, the assays for T-cell responses are just not there. Quite honestly, they're very varied. They're not standardized. And they're not standardized for a reason, which is it's not clear what the right measure is that would correlate with protection. So I think the idea of other kinds of immunity, particularly T-cell-mediated immunity, are open questions. They're exciting. They raise the real possibility of making a difference, but we don't know what they are or how well we're inducing them yet. Eric, I agree. T-cell immunity, what to measure, where to measure it, very complicated. But I also want to not be so comfortable with the B-cell immunity that we measure. And we report in our pages regularly, which has to do with the neutralization of sera of some clinical phenotype against a variant of concern. There are many more antibodies created than just neutralization. And whether they're binding antibodies or other type of immune responses that are not measured as cleanly, or at least not as cleanly in the data submitted to the FDA, as well as in reports, we have to be careful that we are measuring a particular antibody parameter. And there are many other antibodies that are generated that may be relevant in preventing, perhaps not infection, but maybe severe illness. So there's so much more we need to know here. But as you pointed out, we have to move quickly as we've watched wave after wave of variants take over from the prior variant, we have to decide what countermeasures we have available given the variant that is surging at the moment and its potential to cause severe illness broadly. One interesting point that some have made, there are actually four vaccines on the market in the United States, but Janssen didn't present data at this meeting, and Novavax, the maker of the only approved protein-based vaccine, seemed to be sidelined a bit. So what does this mean? It seems that there isn't a strong effort to further advance the adenovirus-based vaccines like the Janssen vaccine. It certainly would be better to have more choices, but I suspect the issue is that these vaccines have been associated with a very rare but potentially lethal syndrome of venous thrombosis that we've discussed before. It's hard for me to tell if the fact that this appears to be abandoned is a result of how the vaccine was positioned as a single-dose vaccine or real concerns about effectiveness and toxicity. The Novavax data certainly look good, but they're a lot less mature than the data for the mRNA vaccines. One big issue facing all the manufacturers of protein-based vaccines is that it takes longer to develop new formulations, and the manufacturing process is almost certainly a lot slower than for mRNA. I do hope that we see more of these protein-based vaccines, but I think there will be challenges. So Eric, I think, as you've said, part of the challenges are the speed with which things can be manufactured and then available. The value of various delivery systems, as we've discussed, may be different qualities of the immune response elicited. And theoretically, there's a lot of attraction to heterologous platforms delivering the same antigen to broaden and deepen the immune response. This is theoretical. There are very limited data on the quality of the immune response that can be elicited by heterologous immunization. And there's very little incentive 
for a heterologous immunization to be studied. And I mean heterologous, one is by the insert, broadening the antigen specificity, but also by the platform, which is what we're talking about now, as this may elicit different aspects of the immune response that can lead to a broader immune response across B and T cell responses. So it's very attractive. It's just the data are very limited. And I'm not sure we're going to have high quality data in this space to help guide our thinking. Lindsay, there was a presentation by John Beigel from the NIH about the possibilities of new vaccine strategies. And I think that there are interesting ideas out there that we'd love to see pursued. There are a lot of barriers, though, to producing a new vaccine. It's unclear how it will be financed and how the uptake will be. Nevertheless, I think it is very important to be thinking about new platforms and new ways of using the vaccines we have. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay. I want to add a note to our listeners. This COVID-19 update will appear every other week. In the intervening weeks, you can hear Intention to Treat, a new podcast hosted by healthcare journalist Rachel Gottbaum, which draws on the deep expertise of the New England Journal of Medicine to present breaking news and incisive analysis of critical and timely issues in medicine and healthcare, from the future of COVID vaccines to psychedelic treatment for depression to reproductive healthcare in post-Roe America. Find Intention to Treat at NEJM.org or wherever you get your podcasts.